Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 240. This week, we talk with David Crook about hacking the stock market with data and machine learning, how to spend nearly a billion dollars in Azure with a single click, and folding at home performs more than twice as fast as the fastest supercomputer. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. Okay, Carl, what do we have for the comment of the week? This week's comment comes from Rod Falanga. Uh, he writes, hey, Carl and Jason and guests, thank you for the episode. And uh, he's talking about the one where we did uh, about Corona tech mm-hmm. and working from home. Um, I've been going through it slowly. I think I'll review it again once I finished it. I want to comment about a topic that Carl brought up that's about companies who wouldn't let their employees work from home uh, previously to seriously reconsider that policy, considering how well work from home has been working out. I work in a state where both public and private sectors have vigorously resisted allowing their employees to work from home. Refusing to allow anyone to work from home has been a policy for several decades. I'm not sure work from home was ever allowed in the state. Well, now that we're all work from home per the governor's requirement, I suspect upper management is surprised that we're productive. So I hope that when we're allowed to go back to a more normal way of working, that we'll be able to continue work from home in some fashion. There's no guarantee that will happen, but one can hope. Yep. Awesome comment. And I, you know, since we recorded that episode, one of the um, best things that I've heard was that like there was three years worth of digital transformation in three weeks, <laughs> yeah. which is pro- like the best way of summing all of this up. I mean, when all these companies were forced to do this, it just really pushed things forward. So, and, and I think the other thing that was, I think very surprising to some people is most places turned that on over a weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like they needed weeks to enable everybody to do this. Yep. Really showed what you can get done in a short amount of time. Absolutely. So if you want to get mentioned on the show, like Rod, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on our website, or on Twitter. We especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. Excellent. Okay, let's jump into the news. We have some really interesting stories this week. So the first one is about an AWS engineer, Tim Bray, uh, resigns from Amazon following worker firings. So as a little bit of a backstory on this, there was... uh, a bunch of uproar from Amazon employees about how uh, working conditions uh, were in Amazon warehouses during the pandemic, or at least the initial parts of uh, the pandemic. And uh, as a result, uh, several employees were laid off uh, under the guise of um, not working well. I mean, not you know, or, or well, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think we, I don't think like, I don't think Amazon yeah. had like a public, you it know, wasn't say, public, but yeah, that it, it was implied for, that for was, some, we'll uh, just say for reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, but apparently some of these people who were let go actually have a really good work history. And, uh, this, uh, Tim Bray in particular, he's a, he was a VP at Amazon and said that, um, as a VP, especially, uh, your values, uh, should reflect the company's values. And if they don't, um, there's still an implied approval. If you continue to work there and your company is doing something that's morally different, uh, than what Mm -hmm. you believe. And that's why he left is because he didn't feel that these people should have been fired, uh, nor should these conditions exist. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I'm not sure, you know, there's probably a, a million different like aspects of this we could talk about. I mean, this guy, he did have millions of dollars. So like he was able to, to take a, take a stand on this, um, which is, which is really good. Uh, you know, my, my biggest fear or concern, or I guess reality is that like, everybody's going to forget about this soon, <laughs> right? Um, two weeks from now, people will probably start, t- stop talking about this. You back, Carl? Yep. I'm back. Okay, perfect. Um, and then you link to a different one here from uh, Reuters as well. So we have two yeah, different storylines. Yeah, that gives a, a little bit of backstory uh, upon what happened with uh, the people that were uh, let go who were uh, protesting and critical of warehouse working conditions. Mm-hmm. 
He had said that they were fired for repeated violations of internal policies without specifying which ones. So yeah, really unfortunate situation. I mean, of course, all we can go off of is like public statements and, and what he said, but, um, you know, definitely, uh, people, it's good to see people that are high up in a company standing for, uh, for what they believe in. Um, yeah. So ho- hopefully some good comes out of this and it improves conditions for people. Um, okay. How to burn the most money with a single click in Azure. Yeah. Um, this is kind of interesting. Uh, you, you know, we've all gone through the portal or at least most of us, uh, in a various cloud and, you know, have been able to allocate cloud resources pretty easily. And we understand, uh, especially when we're doing it for work that there's, you know, money that's being, uh, you know, accrued or a bill that's being accrued with money and that's going to get paid off. And, you know, when you pay attention to some of that, you notice that some things are very, very expensive. So what is kind of the biggest thing that you can do? And, this guy takes a very interesting approach. First, uh, looking at uh, a very big virtual machine. Um, but unfortunately, that one, if you get um, a standard M416 MS V2 that has 416 CPUs and 11,400 gigabytes of RAM <laughs> paid up front for three years, will cost you 802,000, which he was trying to break a million. But uh, to make it worse, because you're buying so much, they give you a 71% discount. <laughs> That's I lo- what I love about this too is the recommended quantity from Azure. It says it's zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he mentions that later. He's like, it it doesn't, you know, the cloud actually says you don't need this much. <laughs> I can't imagine that. That'd be a good developer workstation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the next thing was interesting uh, was we tried blob storage. Uh, and usually it's pretty cheap, but he tried reserving one petabit of data in South Brazil. Um, and that actually uh, gets you over a million. And on this one is 1.6 million in euros. Yep. And, you know, one of the things that this also kind of brings up uh, to bring us back to a little bit of reality is, you know, which data center you're trying to deploy to, they all have different costs to them. Mm-hmm. So something might be really cheap in one area. But for another reason, uh, but for some reason in a different area, it could be uh, much more expensive. So that's, you know, something to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also tried, uh, he broke a million in Azure Databricks. So he got uh, 3.1 million euros there when. <laughs> ha- just half a euro a- per brick, it says. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> I honestly don't know if it's a good deal or not. <laughs> you can't buy one brick. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so. Uh, another thing uh, is Cosmos DB. Uh, Cosmos is a kind of expensive uh, offering depending upon what you're trying to do. Yeah, because it's pretty feature. I mean, it, it's like just feature rich out of the box. Yeah. So he tried um, reserving 5 million RUs, but Azure wouldn't actually let him do that. Um, uh, it You have to like be a business and do an invoice payment option instead of just a credit card. Uh but he was able to estimate what it would be on the Azure calculator. Um, and he gets $9 million. <laughs> um, so he said that there's a, a cheating option too. He says, why would you limit yourself to a single petabyte of data? Uh, let's take all of the petabytes available in South Brazil. <laughs> they only have 99 petabytes that he can access. Well, that it'll, yeah, that the calculator supports. Yeah. Yeah. That the calculator supports. Yeah. Um, and that finally gets, if it were possible, um, he cranks that up to 999 and finally gets 801 million euros. <laughs> but, Almost a uh, billion. I don't I think anybody has the invoicing capabilities to uh, get that past their company. Nice. That is hilarious. That is hilarious. If, if See, I could never be rich like you know bill gates because i would just spend it on stupid stuff like this <laughs> you, you say that but you are pretty fiscally responsible no i know it would just be it would just be awesome to just do this and then just see like what explodes microsoft goes down after after customer <laughs> Jason reserved reserves a billion dollars of capacity <laughs> instantly okay so there you go um, let's see here. I graduated into the dot com bust as a programmer and made it. You will too. 
Yeah. So I, I think this article is pretty interesting. I, we're not going to go through this one in terrible detail. Uh, you can read the article if you want. But I know that right now, uh, depending upon where you are in the world, there's been a lot of layoffs in the industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, other people are going through furloughs or reduced salaries. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that companies are trying to uh, you know, make things work so they – can survive, uh, which means sometimes that employees take the hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a, a little bit of historical perspective uh, throughout this helps me, you know, understand that this is just a blip in the radar. So uh, the story that this guy uh, tells is that he graduated in May 2001, right at the bursting of the bubble for that dot com uh, bust. Mm-hmm. And throughout the years, there's been ups and downs. There was, uh, the recession in 2009 that was tough as well, but throughout that he's still been able to have a really successful and, and solid career, um, as well. And I think we have to remember that too, is many of us may be out of a job, reduced hours, reduced pay. Um, you know, this is going to come over or we're going to come out of this on the other side, hopefully sooner than later. And, we'll be able to continue moving forward in the directions that we had planned for ourselves. Absolutely. I just realized in my career that I got hired this, it would have been right around the dot com bust. I didn't even think about that. And then I actually lost my job in the economic downturn in 2008. And I was able to, uh, I was able to get out of that, which was, uh, which was good. Thankfully I was out of work for, I want to say two months, um, which is really scary. You know, whenever you have kids and, responsibilities. And I didn't have like a crazy amount of money in the bank, you know? So we were just on like super, super lockdown. Like you are not buying anything or using any service that you don't absolutely need. So, um, those were tough times. And actually, I mean, it, we've probably talked about on the show before. I mean, it's kind of shaped, uh, how I do things, you know, I don't do a 15 year mortgage. I do a 30 year mortgage. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just, it just shapes the way that, that you think about money and finance and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, and we'll come out of this. I mean, everything happens sort of in waves. Who knows how long it will take? Um, working from home being a thing is really gonna. There's going to be a lot of work in that area, which is great. So you know, there'll be there'll be hotspots for a while where um, there'll be sort of the islands where people can can stay for a while. Um, okay, this agency uh, guy built an AI clone to attend Zoom meetings for him. <laughs> We were laughing uncontrollably before the show about this. So go to the link and watch the video. It's Mm -hmm. hilarious, but we're going to go through it uh, now. So what this guy did is he built himself a bot that provide a video and audio version of himself to go into a meeting. And the best part of this is instead of like warning his coworkers, he just kind of unleashed this. So if you look at a still picture, it looks like, you know, this guy, there's a actual human being in a meeting. It, it's a picture of the guy. But if you watch the video, it's kind of like South Park animation style where he basically just has like four or five different pictures he's swapping out to make it look like he's moving. And he has a uh, text to speech module that is obviously very robotic. And then he is American, or I believe he's American, but he uh, has the voice in a British accent. So he kind of just is in a meeting and just lets this happen. And his coworkers are starting to respond to him. Most of them pick it up pretty quick that it's something's not right. Yeah. But there's one person in particular in here that even though they suspect something's wrong, they still keep talking to him and he keeps his bot keeps responding. So some of the things I really liked this video. How about you, Carl? (laughs) I'm having trouble hearing you. So that's Jason. I guess I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to make a podcast bot and then <laughs> we can just do the, the podcast. Yeah, but some of the simple things that is like, if somebody asks, how are you? It replies, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Did you get that replies? I'm having trouble hearing you, which is a great response for a bot. Uh, bye replies. Talk to everybody later. Be safe. So he has some pretty well thought out answers in here and it is hilarious. The, uh, video is only a minute and a half, uh, but you'll be cracking up through most of it. So this thing is really cool because I, I noticed I was looking at the tech behind him. It, it's this Artium, 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 uh, yep. I think is what it's called. Uh, A-R-T-Y-O-M dot J-S. Yeah. 
That's really cool. Like it supports uh, voice recognition, voice synthesis. Actually, is there a demo of the voice recognition? Speak text. Oh no, that's that's to say it. That's where I um, said that online. Um, yeah, so it said this. Uh, it only took him four hours for him to make this, and for four hours worth of work, it's definitely, definitely good. Oh, here we go. Get spoken text while it's active. So if I click that button, recognized. Hmm. Get spoken text while it's active. So test, 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 test. I don't know how to do it on their page here, but it says that my browser supports that as well. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of uh, different voices, but the fact that you could just like run this in a browser is uh, is pretty cool. So, um, oh yeah, voice commands. I just think that's pretty cool that they give you like a really nice uh, way to do like voice prompts and, and things like that. So, um, oh, I bet you I need to give it microphone access. That's what it is. Always allow that to have microphone access. Okay, now I can do it. I want to see how good it is at recognizing it. Hello, how are you? It's blocked. Microphone. I have to pick the right microphone. Done. Test, test, test. One, two, three. I think I've, uh, I think I've broken it. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, it's not, it's not recognizing anything I'm saying. I'm not sure why. Yeah, we can troubleshoot that off the air though. No, let's troubleshoot it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can move on. Anything else you want to say about that? It's just, it's hilarious. It's all like a it's one hilarious. minute video. It's totally watch worth it. watching it. Um, folding at home is now, po- po- oh wow, more powerful than the world's top seven compute supercomputers combined. Well, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. So uh, as soon as uh, the COVID research uh, was kicking up into high gear, folding at home uh, started ingesting uh, some of these COVID workloads. And with a lot of people having interest um, in kind of finding a solution to overcome COVID, um, folding at home project saw a great increase in the number of people volunteering processing power. And right now they're saying they're, pushing out 470 petaflops of raw compute power. <laughs> wow. That's twice as fast as summit the world's next fastest supercomputer or wow. the, the fastest supercomputer. Um, but if you take the top seven combined, it's still faster than all seven of those, which is to me just kind of insane. Actually, now that I'm thinking about this, I think that is obviously super, super, super impressive. But if you think about it too, like there are, um, it's faster or it's more powerful than the world's top seven supercomputer. So is it number, I'm sorry, is it number one? Well, it doesn't technically qualify because it's not a supercomputer. Right, right, right. But if it was, oh, okay. So if, but I just want to be clear, if it was on the list, it would be number one by like double. One by okay. Wow. Okay. Never mind. What I was going to yep. say was going to be really stupid. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and also, uh, you know, just talking about the actual work that it's doing, just for the coronavirus fight, it has found 77 different small molecule drug compounds that might be useful to fight the virus. Wow. Um, I find the, it amazing too, that they get like th- that there's, there is math and enough like computational work that can be done that this thing can just chug along at that. And that those results can be useful. That, that really amazes me. <laughs> that, that is. And that's why I think this is kind of it, nice to highlight the work that they're doing. Because when you understand uh, the scope and um, the impact that they're having, it might encourage other people to donate some of their spare CPU cycles to make this even more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. This website is still listening to me, but it's not recognizing anything. (laughs) So the number one supercomputer, Summit, just to give a little bit of perspective, employs 220,000 CPU cores. 188 million CUDA cores and 9.2 petabytes of memory and 250 petabytes of mixed NVRAM and storage. See, if I was a billionaire, I'd have one of those too. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Jason goes broke episode. That would be my game, my gaming PC. <laughs> uh, imagine the frame rates you could get on Warzone. Yeah, absolutely. Could render the whole the whole world. I would just be the server. And the clients, all the clients, they would just, it'd be a LAN party <laughs> in one machine. Yep. Raygun crash reporting provides automated monitoring software for your entire tech stack, giving you better visibility and code level diagnostics into the errors and crashes that affect your end users. Raygun is a more sophisticated alternative to logging errors. While logs provide you with an overwhelming stream of information, Raygun finds then groups errors based on root cause. 
The easy-to-use dashboard gives your team members a manageable list of bugs to fix in real time, ranked on frequency, or by the number of users affected. Getting started takes minutes. Simply select the language and framework you wish to monitor and add Raygun into your code using one of their lightweight SDKs. So what are you waiting for? It's time to control the chaos around solving software bugs in your own application. Deliver better software experiences for your customers with Raygun. Visit raygun.com to find out more. This week, we're sitting down to talk to David Crook, founder of EasyStockInvestor.com. How's it going, David? It's going pretty good. Yeah, the last time we talked to you, you were uh, talking about self-driving cars. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's uh, come a long way. That was a that was a neat set of talks too. Yeah, I just remember the car driving in circles because it was it was oh, trying, the one that I made. <laughs> yeah, it was trying it was trying to uh, make its master happy, and it thought that's the way that it should do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes AI doesn't do what you think it does is going to do. Yeah. Uh, It'll find shortcuts. <laughs> it's gonna find the shortcuts. Wait, wait, you should you should coin the phrase like AI will find a way. <laughs> you need uh was it Jeff? Uh was a what the heck is his name? Jeff? I don't know, the actor. Now everybody's shouting at the their actor podcast. Named Jeff. There are a Jeff, lot of Jeff there, Jason. The guy from uh from those movies with the pods. Oh my god. The guy named Jeff from the movies. <laughs> from Jurassic Park. The guy from Jurassic Park where he's oh, like Life will find a way. Goldblum, that was it, yeah. I kept thinking Blankenberg just because I know Jeff so well. <laughs> you mean Jeff isn't even his name? <laughs> but I kept thinking uh, um, Blankenberg. That's funny. Okay. So let's just get into this uh, because you have this new uh, startup that you wanted to talk about. Little uh, side gig that you've been uh, that you've been uh, trying to push lately. So why don't you just kind of start from the beginning and uh, tell us about this startup? Yeah. So um, I've been... I, I was checking out when I first started it, and the idea first popped into my head a few years ago. But I really started cranking on it uh, more recently, more January this year kind of time frame. And that came about when I was doing my taxes, and I realized how much money I had lost in the stock market <laughs> due to bad decisions. And uh, you know, it was a lot of you know friends recommending, "Hey, this stock is really awesome. You should go buy that." So I went and bought that. And then uh, another buddy said, hey, marijuana is going to do really great. So I went and bought a bunch of that stuff. And um, it, you mean the stock? <laughs> the stock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be very clear about that. Uh, so you can go and buy that. And um, and I lost somewhere around uh, $15,000 in companies that, you know, either no longer existed or just tanked right away. And it was on kind of these hypothetical buy situations and um, you know, I had some level of an understanding of what was going on, but not enough, you know, reading the technical indicators. Uh, so I decided to build this app. And uh, ever since I built the app, my um, my prospect has gone from losing twelve to $15,000 to I took a look at what my gain this most recent year was with, port, uh, with uh, Fidelity. Mm -hmm. And I'm up 110%, which wow. is just yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge difference from like, you know, losing all of your money to, all right, we're going to draw stop here, start fresh and measure, you know, using the app instead. And I'm at 110%. It's just crazy. Um, so, yeah, um, and it, it's just too complicated as I, I didn't start off wanting to build my own app. I started off trying to find something else that was out there. So um, there's a fair number of competitors, but the problem was like, the time commitment and the knowledge required to use them was just way too high. I, you know, you had to essentially go and read three or four different books, figure out a strategy, and you're still not even, you know, necessarily going to make good decisions. So I was trying to build a series of tools that could help me be more effective. Um, you know, I'm not going to beat the day traders, but at least I'm not going to lose $15,000 um, in an average year. Yeah. So I was just looking to just, you know, uh, there's got to be some kind of um, disclaimer that we have to put on this episode <laughs> where like, don't believe anything we say, um, you know, this is not financial advice, blah, 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 blah. I, I don't know what the rules are around that. So I just wanted to be really upfront with that because I looked at, um, it's funny, I came to you and I was saying, hey, take a look at STWD, which is Starwood Property Trust, which is like, you can buy it, you know, for a third of the price that it was not too long ago. And then you said, also take a look at, you used your little tool and you said, uh, look at NRZ. And I was just looking. So the day we chatted, 
Um, you said to buy that, which it would have been $4 and 36 cents. And right now it's at five eighty four, So it's, has definitely gone up since then. Um, so I think sure. that was probably a good bet. Um, yeah, which is, which is pretty cool. Like you were able to look at which stock, you know, the algorithm said was kind of, uh, you know, ripe for investing at the, at the current time, which is pretty neat. Yeah, I've, I've been doing some. So it, it uses a combination of um, kind of computer generated modeling uh, and computer based analysis on mm-hmm. various mm-hmm. indicators. But it doesn't just stop with uh, computer based intelligence. It actually has uh, some human analysts in the loop and we generate scores on that as well. And it's interesting to see uh, sometimes there's a difference between what the humans think and what the computers think. And um, with uh, and, you know, we've just had a recent world event, you know, mm-hmm. COVID-19 has happened. And it's interesting to see the difference between what an analyst thinks and a computer thinks in different uh, industries and different companies in those industries. Um, at, like specifically in a world event that has impact that a computer can't necessarily see. And I think that's a really interesting kind of thing. So uh, one of my neighbors uh, was looking into ExxonMobil. And uh, ExxonMobil had a uh, large holding of um, crude oil production. Mm -hmm. And then one of their competitors had a heavier holding of refinement. And, um, you know, COVID-19 had just come up and we were looking at it and uh, the analysts were like, ooh, stop buying ExxonMobil. And it showed up in my app that, you know, the analysts were saying, you know, stop with that, go buy this. And the computer scores were kind of even for both of them because they're fairly decent uh, um, competitors with each other. But it was interesting to see that uh, it reflected even world events and um, the company that had larger holdings and refinement, which could now go and get the crude oil cheaper uh, and refine because their business wasn't impacted as much, um, were able to um, buy into that. Now, Exxon has kind of been degrading and that company has has been increasing. And I would suspect that at some point it will, you know, the tables will turn again. Mm hmm. It's, it's just neat to see that uh, that kind of thing is actually being incorporated. Um, you know, computers aren't always going to win everything, but you can bring in some humans in the loop and add that into the calculation. Um, so <clears throat> diving into the technology a bit, you've decided to run this on Azure. Uh, considering that you're a startup, why did you choose Azure over the other clouds? That's a good question. Um, One of them is that I know Azure really well, obviously. Um, I I think one of the big selling points, though, was uh, the Azure Kubernetes service was available. So um, and I was able to also run Kubernetes and Docker locally. Uh, So when you're a startup, cost is a huge thing. Like I'm paying for this out of my day job salary. And I have a family of four to feed, right? So like money is a, is, you know, is a big deal. So while I'm in the experimentation phase, I need to be able to run and share, run things locally, make sure it works, share it with other engineers, and they need to be able to repeat what I do. Then we need to have a good on-ramp into a suite of technologies that we know will be able to support that and run the same way. And um, and have confidence in that. And Azure had a series of technologies, you know, primarily AKS and the virtual networking and the public IPs and the DNS that um, were able to match. So when we were moving from our local experimentation to all right, let's start getting this thing out the door. Um, it really only took us a few days to flip from local mode only works on my box to now we have a public offering with um, and with TLS uh, termination at um, at the gateway um, and private IP addresses behind because we didn't know how to necessarily protect our database at that point either we weren't very good at that but it was only available inside the virtual network and the only way to get in there was through this gateway and it was IP whitelisting so like even if we didn't have a password, there's no way you're getting in. So it was it was really nice 
to be able to have access to technologies that supported that on-ramp. Yeah, that actually brings up a really good strategy, which is, you know, if even even if you were not, if you were building an application and let's say it was going to be an on-prem application, it was not going to be cloud first, you can certainly design your application in such a way that going, you know, moving into the cloud will be very painless, you know, because if you if you design it with the right resiliency and those types of things, which will, won't harm you on-prem, and if you design it in such a way that it's portable, then you can bring that onto the uh, the cloud with minimal work, which is great. That's exactly what we did. You know, if you yeah. think we, we were running it locally, which is essentially on-prem, mm-hmm. checking it, making sure everything worked. Our data pipelines, like we have a fairly sophisticated machine learning pipeline that uh, combines multiple data sources, merges those together, does a series of calculations, does some uh, modeling and analysis. Like even that workload um, was working and running in an on-premise type solution, Kubernetes based. And today it's running in Azure exactly like it runs on my computer. So um, it, it's really nice to be able to have that level of portability. And, um, you know, that, that's one of the big reasons we ended up with uh, Azure was that level of portability and flexibility mm-hmm. and uh, being able to test it out essentially for free before we ever bought a server. And just when we did the flip, it just worked. <laughs> yeah, It was really nice. So do you, do you run it locally and only process maybe like a couple stocks? And then what you do is when it's in the cloud, you scale it up with cloud resources. Um, at, at this point, what we do is we have uh, two cloud environments. We have a dev environment and a prod environment. Uh, we're facilitating that with Azure DevOps. There's a manual gate between our dev and our prod environment. So um, we'll experiment on things. So we'll do feature branching uh, and have a feature team and they'll build stuff uh, on their branch locally, test it out locally, uh, and then merge and do a PR into master. Then uh, master will kick off all of its automated tests. And then uh, assuming it passes that level of tests, it'll deploy to our dev environment. And our dev environment is an exact copy of production uh, minus the users. So our dev is actually, you can actually go publicly get it, but um, you know we have user whitelisting. So you can't get in unless you have uh, our dev credentials. And um, it, it's just got all the same stuff and it's cloud scale and it runs. And if we want to have uh, some new features that we really want to check out like fairly extensively, We'll run it there before manually approving. So actually right now we have one of those features in dev right now that we're testing. Um, It's a really big feature. I'm really excited about it. Uh, We have integration with TD Ameritrade coming. So we, you know, if you go to the production environment, we don't have any brokerage services or account management Um, coming as soon as we allow that feature to ship, you'll be able to. Uh, directly integrate with TD Ameritrade, import your portfolio, buy, sell, and everything directly from the application. And um, your uh, portfolio that gets brought in will be automatically put into our portfolio watch capabilities, which is part of that complex machine learning pipeline. Um, But anyways, that's a really big piece of sophisticated capability and that we're leaving running in dev for a few weeks because it's got some synchronization it does behind the scenes um, before we ever push that out to prod. So, you know, some of the scale up, we test it and do a couple of button clicks locally. Oh, okay, I could bring in my TD Ameritrade account. Let's push it to dev. Let's let it run for a week or two. Make sure that everything runs flawlessly uh, the way that it needs to with all the security that it needs to. And then we're going to promote it to production. So you mentioned AKS. What other cloud technologies are you using? Uh, so we, we had a bit of a flip here. The database was one of the big things, you know, being a very data centric um, offering. Everything we do is with data. Uh, when we And this talks about the on-ramping a bit, I think. We started off, everything was inside of Kubernetes. And now that we're starting to get some users and we're starting to get some scale and we need to make sure that we have um, some flavor of uptime and resiliency, one of the first things we looked at um, upgrading was our data offering. 
So we run MongoDB, and uh, for the first while, we were running uh, MongoDB inside of the Kubernetes cluster because locally we were running MongoDB inside the Kubernetes cluster. So we did the on-ramp and we went to Azure. And for our production release, we were running MongoDB as a stateful service in Azure Kubernetes service. So then, um, you know, we needed to add more flexibility around the database and more scale um, and that resiliency layer. So we needed to get off of that. It was just too much to manage. Uh, so we we're looking for some kind of cloud managed service. So we actually did a live upgrade um, in our dev environment and in prod actually to uh, Cosmos DB. Uh, and, and we were on Cosmos DB for about a total of six hours before I realized the bill was going to be really, really big and the performance was super slow for our night jobs. It was failing out on our night job. It just, from an application database perspective, it just was not the right managed MongoDB technology for us. Mm -hmm. uh, so we ended up doing a live migration again in production from uh, Cosmos DB back to the uh, self-managed uh, uh, Mongo in Kubernetes. Then we discovered this technology called Atlas. And Atlas was, uh, it was exactly what I was looking for. So it's not something that you can get directly from the Azure portal, uh, but if you go and look up MongoDB Atlas, they have their own um, web platform and they're an ISV, and they do managed MongoDBs in whatever cloud you want. And uh, so we picked, uh, the uh, Azure East US location and deployed uh, Atlas there. And it's super fast. We can scale live. It has all the point in time restore capability that we want. And um, one of the other nice things is that you can use uh, something called Compass, which is essentially a MongoDB exploration tool. So if something gets out of whack or out of sync in the database, um, from a support operations perspective, we can open this up, point it at the production, and then go and directly modify the database using queries and things like that. So it's made um, operating the database for the production solution a lot easier. Um, yeah, I was just taking a look at this Atlas. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's just like a managed service offering from, from MongoDB. Yeah, I didn't want to have to be in the business of managing uh, a database, you know, like, especially as a side project, I don't have enough users right now. Like, it doesn't even pay for itself yet. I'm losing a bunch of money on it every month at the moment mm -hmm. um, until I get enough users. So, you know, having a day job and two kids and a wife and still wanting to go and like do something fun, I really didn't want to be managing a, um, a self-managed database and all the headache and worry that I was having with that and just going to a fully managed service in the cloud was great. So I, I ended up picking the dedicated tier because you can go um, and right out the gate, I've got a sharded tier. So it's got a, it's got a, a master write with a multi-read, which is perfect for my app because you know, we, we do a fair number of writes, but it's not that often. We do, like, we have our nightly job, and that job is that really big machine learning pipeline. And I get emails from uh, Atlas every night saying, you seem to be using a lot of the capability. You may need to upgrade your SKU, <laughs> you know. But that's because at, you know, about you know 11 o'clock at night, I run this ginormous job that analyzes everything and then, you know, spits the results back into the database. Um, but it handles it and it doesn't fail. Uh, but once that job is done, mostly it's just a bunch of read operations. So having a single write multi-read out the gate, and I'm only paying like 50 bucks a month for it. It might be 55. Um, mm. And that's got, the, uh, that's got the backups on. That's got the point in time restore. It's... I couldn't be happier with that service. I had a chat with them today. They even reached out. They're like, we see that uh, you've just gotten a production instance in Atlas, and uh, we just wanted to check and see if you needed any technical assistance. We have engineers to help. That's wow, pretty that's cool. great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if your startup was a publicly traded company, would your software recommend itself? 
of course. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I say no? If there's a company to invest in, it's mine. <laughs> By That's the way, we're losing money. So if you need to invest in something, I'm going to take this as a segue opportunity. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Okay. So, I, you know, I have a question. You know, the last time we, we had you on the show, you were talking about, you know, self-driving cars. So how does, how does self-driving vehicles translate into stock picking, which, you know, so the question basically means though, like, you know, what, what kind of AI does this take, you know, and and what does that, how does that work? So uh, we haven't gotten to the super highly sophisticated AI stuff yet. Um, We have some machine learning algorithms running at the moment. Uh, but they're very simplistic models. It's not anywhere near the kinds of things that we were doing with the self-driving cars. Uh, so um, th- there's a big difference uh, just between the two types of AI. Um, so what we're trying to do here is create a series of scores at the moment that are human understandable for a V, you know, like a baseline offering. And just kind of layer in the intelligence. Like AI isn't necessarily something that just gets built overnight. You need to have the ability to add value, collect more data, add more value, collect more data, add value. So at this point in our startup's life, we're really in the um, create a baseline set of offerings, have some very, very simple models that add value. And then as time goes on, we'll be able to uh, increase what types of models we have, what they do, and add more value. So what's neat, though, in, you know, I think the crux of the question is what translates over. Um, In the self-driving car, it was a fully autonomous system, which was a combination of a ton of different models. We're still using a lot of the same types of models but we haven't chained them all the way through to be fully autonomous. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to do that with this. I don't Mm. know if that's, you know, there's (laughs) like, right. Like at some point this self-driving car decided the best thing to do was to do freaking donuts in my driveway. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I want my stock app to start doing donuts with people's portfolio. That sounds like a bad idea. So, Mm. you know, there's an obvious human in the loop here. Um, and, and we even put that into the data. So we're using, in this case, a lot of the algorithms around forecasting and a lot of the algorithms around direction, a lot of the algorithms around bucketizing and categorization to help drive kind of these human understandable scores. But the high level cognitive capability, we are still making a, a known decision that we want to put that in the hands of the human. And we are really working at making the human a more powerful investor. Whereas if we were to take the self-driving car approach, that's just replacing the human altogether. Mm-hmm. And, and there's things that will kind of do that out there. That's just not really what we're doing at the moment. And we haven't decided if that's a direction we want to go yet because, you know, there's a level of danger associated with it. You know, some of the big things that'll happen, like, you can spoof an AI system. Um, so like in the self-driving car scenario, I saw one that was really, really interesting. So early day AI cars, before they figured this stuff out, you know, they um, essentially did line following. It was solid line, dotted line, stay on the right-hand side, mm-hmm. right? Well, somebody got the bright idea that I'm going to go to one of these roundabouts and I'm going to just solid line, dotted line, and it just followed that in the mm. roundabout forever. It never got out. It was an infinite loop of could not escape the roundabout. <laughs> um, and then, you know, and this is in production, you know, they're testing this stuff well, out. And I've seen that too. There was, there. I mean, Tesla, you know, I, I, luckily I, I think that people, I think people are starting to get in line with what I've been saying, which is, you know, we're just not even close to self-driving being ready. Um, so, you know, there's been so many stories coming out like, uh, somebody put some tape on a sign, right? I don't remember what the speeds were. It was 25 and then they switched it so that it was like 85, I think, using electrical tape and the car started accelerating. You know, it's just like, oh, woohoo, 85 mile an hour. I can go now. Um, and then there's been so many news stories about, you know, putting stickers on the road, like you mentioned. Um, like, it's crazy. I mean, they're obviously not using enough signals. I mean, and and I was thinking about this in relation to stock as well. Like you can't literally just look at, 
you know, like what the stock price is and try to make determinations. And even if you look at all the other metrics on the stock, it, it doesn't matter. Like me as a human, you know, this, this whole Corona thing, like everybody's like, where did this come from? This is, we're shocked, shocked. I tell you that this happened in the U S and the thing was like, I, I want to say it was either, was it November, December? I was talking to my buddy in China <laughs> and he's just like, Hey, this is happening. And it's get ready. <laughs> yeah. Get ready. And here's what I'm dealing with. And, you know, so then like January rolls around and, you know, I'm just like, okay, well, I'm just going to make sure that I have enough stuff. I know this is coming and, you know, just like way ahead of it. And, and I think, I think the reason that I say this is because like, if you can look at enough signals and I mean, it's just like the, the broader you can get with those signals, the more that you can actually start to predict this stuff, right? Yeah. Well, and that's why we're not 100% machine learning AI based. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like, ha- like we have a page on our app, uh, the investments tab, we have something called daily picks. So every single night, our algorithm runs. So we do major updates on um, uh, once a week, and we do minor updates throughout the week. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a lot of big things change on the week rollover, and you'll see minor changes throughout the week. But one of the big things to try and deal with that and that like, you know, computers are powerful, but they're not these all powerful beings. There are things that humans are going to see that computers can't. Mm-hmm. And we weight what the humans say significantly more than what the computer says. Do we take into account what the what the computer says? Of course, 100 yeah. percent. But at every metric that gets calculated for this particular feature, we're weighting the human score in with it and we're taking we're erring on the side of the human and and uh, because we have both a computer score and a human score um, a delta between those two actually has um, can have some form of interpreted meaning and um, it's you know because we're not like having series seven licenses or any of that kind of stuff um, it's algorithmic uh, output and you know basically our disclosure says you're paying to see the output of the algorithm really you have to figure out what that um, what that delta means to you but um, just be I'll, uh, you know when covid-19 came around there were big differences between what the humans thought and what the computer thought and uh, that score difference uh, be it a positive or negative sto- score uh, difference and the magnitude of that difference really should influence some of your decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, yeah, we, we really didn't want to go purely on that route for exactly those reasons. And mm-hmm. even if you go into like our uh, company analysis, we have a like a 10 page analysis for every company. And it, it basically we have six different scores, earnings score, fundamental score, valuation risk, price momentum and insider trading. Each one of those has it, it, those are composite scores rolled up of other scores. So there's some technical computer generated scoring that happens. There's some um, forecasting that happens, but also there's an analyst looking at this stuff and passing a judgment on it. So, um, you know, we're trying to make sure that, uh, you know, you can automate a lot of this, but you need to balance what the computer says with what an actual real life analyst says. And, um, we don't have the analysts. We're actually leaning on uh, a partner network to get those analysts and those analyst recommendations. So that's one of the big things that we've been doing is we essentially buy a lot of this data from third parties, and then we layer additional intelligence on top of that. And we make sure that we kind of weight the analyst score that comes in from those third parties with our own calculated scores with other third parties calculated scores. So we try and make sure we kind of have a diversified set of opinions between humans and computers. So with the amount of times that you're kind of bringing changes to your code to uh, staging and production and with all the different data that you're pulling in and calculating and weighing, how important is automation and how much have you invested in automating uh, things versus just doing them manually? Automation is the most important thing. I could not have my day job without the level of automation. I, I like out the gate, the first thing I started investing in 
was automation. I have like, I think I've got unit test coverage of almost 95% at the moment for code coverage of lines of code. So, um, you know, when I release and I look at that as like a risk factor, most people don't shoot for code coverage, but like I look at code coverage as like a, I made a change, the untested lines of code is my risk. <laughs> so if I push something out there, I have a, if I have 95% code coverage, I have a 5% chance that I broke something when I make a new change. And then um, the other automation that's in there around release and quality control is super important. Uh, like if I go look at my dev pipeline or my release pipeline, um, I have right now in dev probably 15 to 20 releases that I have rejected that have not gone to production. And um, eventually I'm going to get a release in dev that can go to production. So all I have to do is literally click approve and it's going to just take all that code and do a in-place upgrade of everything. And I don't have to worry except for the 5% that's not tested. And it, that, you, you know, like we ship, like we ship code upgrades like it's religion. Um, it is, I like this past week, I have, um, so I've shipped two or three bug fixes and features to production and I have a couple of uh, feature branches that are shipping to dev. And um, the level of automation to make that happen is just super, super important. Um, and, and the other thing that's really nice about the level of automation that we have is I could literally have somebody go in and delete my entire resource group. And I can click a button and I'm going to have that entire thing back online do a point and click restore at a point in time and have production back up in probably 30 minutes. That's pretty cool. So are there, are there features in Azure itself that sort of guide the decisions you make in terms of features? So it's like, Hey, you know, we can spin up massive amounts of compute. So like, let's come up with some compute heavy workloads, for example, or, you know, like, are there any good examples of that? Uh, the next big thing, so kind of thinking about the on-ramp of what features and capabilities are around um, and, and that ramp, right? So we still have a very, very small dev team. It's me and my dad at this point. I managed to convince him earlier this week that, you know, hey, I've got paying customers. Can you please help me? Because, like, this is a lot of coding. Um, so given that we just have two people, you know, trying to figure out what the ramp looks like and picking features for that, um, we have identified what the next thing is, and it is being influenced by what's available in Azure. We want to take our machine learning pipeline, which currently in total takes about 14 hours to run. Um, it's, it's a huge workload. And um, we want to split it up into smaller workloads, and we want to have some of them run independently and we want to join them together. Um, but, you know, in the sense of automation, I want to make sure that I can have my infrastructure automatically deployed in case something horrible goes wrong. Uh, so, you know, the Terraform is what we're using for the infrastructure automation. Um, I want to find a piece of technology that is automatable by infrastructure, by Terraform. And I want to make sure that it has a really good solid DevOps strategy around it because I want to have that entire complex workload um, be able to be deployed as code. So there's two pieces of technology that um, I'm evaluating to solve that particular problem that both exist in Azure. Um, I'm not sure if they both have Terraform bindings, which may or may not be a deal breaker, but the DevOps strategy is definitely a deal breaker. If I can't automatically upgrade the join split flow and the compute that they leverage and have ephemeral compute as part of that strategy, then I'm going to have to, um, you know, pick a different technology. So the two we're looking at, we're looking at the Azure Machine Learning Services has um, a machine learning pipelining capability. And it's really neat. It's a YAML definition for what your pipeline looks like. You can fork, you can join, you can, uh, for one step, you can pick uh, Azure Data Bricks, 
for another step, you can just say, I want to spin up a random compute cluster and do that. Or I can even take advantage of my existing Kubernetes cluster if I have excess capacity. Um, and because it has that YAML definition, the pipeline itself is code and there are um, ephemeral compute capabilities that exist in it. So that kind of checks all of the boxes except for the Terraform box. Um, another one is the Azure Data Factory capability. It has a similar um, DevOps type um, strategy, but it's a JSON format and it has a UI tool built in. So what I like about that is UI is easier to build than, you know, code YAML stuff and there's an export button. So I can design and build in the UI, export, get my first rendition written there and then can use the UI to generate the code version control and um, be able to release like that. So that then fits in with my automation strategy. Um, so we haven't made that decision, but that's the next big thing to move. Um, and, and that should cut down our time from 14 hours, because I know there's two parallel workloads in there. One workload takes 12 hours and one workload takes two. So, um, and then I can add in all of our portfolio alerting and monitoring as a, as a uh, join workload from those two. So, um, you know, everything's more independent, independently executable and independently rerunnable, which would be really nice. So <clears throat> what about the costs of these different services? How much uh, does that affect the decisions to use them? Hugely. That's why we didn't do Cosmos. Um, like Cosmos for one of my collections to get the throughput that we need. We weren't even sticking a lot of data in there. Uh, it was like 15 megabytes that I needed to stick in in about five seconds. And it was like blocking me on throughput because it's megabytes per second that they measured me on. Uh, so I had to scale it up to 10,000 throughput units, which was $550 a month per collection which was more than the total cost of both of my environments. So we shut that down. Um, now, from the data pipelining perspective, that's why I highlight the concept of ephemeral compute. Uh, what that really means is it's compute that can attach to my data tier. Uh, the data tier is typically very inexpensive, but the compute is usually very expensive. So if I can turn that compute on, attach it to my data tier, then run my calculations, store it back into my data tier, and then turn my compute tier off. Those are the technologies that I, I want to run. Because if I look at like, you know, take like, I, I analyze 4,500 stocks every night. And I have to do a bunch of calculations. I do delta calculations on what's already there versus what's coming in. I do algorithms. I need to uh, generate alerts. Um, so... If I go ephemeral compute, it will cost me the same to stand up, say, five computers as it will to stand up 4,500 computers. Because I have a workload that is horizontally scalable, um, picking something that's, that's um, ephemeral means that I can complete that same job in 60 seconds with 4,500 computers at the same cost that it would do for five computers for six hours. Yeah. So um, that's a huge deal. That's pretty cool. Uh, and and um, I really like those kind of technologies because ephemeral compute means cost the same, get the job done sooner. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Okay. So what is the, you know, on the topic of pricing, then what is the pricing that you charge to your end users? The pricing I'm charging is uh, we're running a special right now. Um, so that's kind of the special. The typical pricing is $25 a month. Uh, which is, uh, we did, we were actually doing a cost comparison last night because I was like, oh, that sounds really expensive. I'm not really sure if that's the right price, but I compared to my competitors and we are way cheaper than mm -hmm. the competitors. So um, I think I'm going to stick with that for a while. Mm -hmm. But we are running a special for the first hundred uh, customers who subscribe uh, directly from the website. We have a code 21st100 and it's $5 a month for the first three months. Okay. I also generated a discount code just for you guys for this show. So if that runs out, you can use MS Dev Show as a coupon code. And it's the same deal. $20 off for the first okay. three months. Okay. So, so we'll just have everybody use the MS Dev Show coupon code. Yeah, I'd like to see how many people come through that. Okay. <laughs> Let's get those numbers up. Awesome. Awesome.
Okay. Anything else you wanted to mention before we move on? Um, I'd like to see what people have to say about it. You know, um, it's hard, uh, to tell why people join or leave or churn or don't sign up versus sign up. I'd love to just, you know, have people tweet at me or email me or something with what they thought about it and, um, what kinds of things they would like to see. And, um, yeah, I like to be customer driven with the technology choices that we make mm-hmm. and the investments that we make in the capabilities that we try to offer. So I'd really like to, you know, connect with anybody who hears this show and has any kind of opinions on things. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I'm sure our listeners uh, will give you some great feedback. Very awesome. Okay. So um, the website again was easystockinvestor.com. So E A S Y stockinvestor.com and uh where can people find you specifically uh on twitter i've changed my handle a couple of times i gotta go and actually look at my handle i think i'm david crook (laughs) david (laughs) underscore crook one on twitter (laughs) okay (laughs) underscore yep david underscore crook one and uh my email address is david at easystockinvestor.com Okay. Or directly from the website, there's a uh, contact us um, uh, at the bottom as well as the top. Okay. And uh, there's also a contact form. So if you hit the support department, um, it actually right now goes directly to me because I am the sort on the support department. I'm the CEO. I'm the engineer. <laughs> you know, it's a startup, man. Yeah. So. Totally understand. That's the way to do it. Cool. Cool. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Techie. So David, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about the, the architecture and the brain power behind Easy Stock Investor. I was glad to be on. Thank you very much. 